Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. This Humankind special project, The Power of Nonviolence, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by a major grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. The Taoists have a beautiful saying that if you remove the obstruction from the eye, the eye sees. If you remove this obstruction from the ear, the ear hears. If you remove the obstruction from the heart, the heart loves. It's like the, the heart naturally loves. Fostering the conditions where compassion can flow is a way to defuse the tendency for hostility and violence. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freud. Compassion for others starts with understanding. Understanding of others requires self-reflection. So when we develop a gentle awareness and acceptance of our own human foibles, that generates a reservoir of compassion we can draw from in caring for others. It's a deep insight from Frank Rogers, professor at the Claremont School of Theology near Los Angeles and author of Practicing Compassion. It's a continual toggle between self-compassion and other compassion. Um, that, and, and that when we find ourselves in a, in a state where we're not feeling compassionate or we're not for even wanting to be compassionate for in whatever way, whether we're angry or we're just preoccupied or we're numb or we're overwhelmed or we're sad or we're grieving, instead of demonizing those interior states or trying to push them away so that I can really be compassionate because that's a better way to be, or um, instead, well, let's take a U-turn and understand where these things within us come from. But here's the challenge. Sometimes we're not very conscious of our own underlying motives. We may not be aware of what's truly propelling that bad mood or the blow up with a loved one or just a low-grade angst that can surface when blurting out the wrong thing. Why do we sometimes overreact to strangers who are aggressive while other times we take their behavior in stride? It may require some quiet time and some courage to get to the bottom of our drives so they can be managed. Actually, every single interior move, every rage, every self-destructive impulse, every violent impulse, every anxiety, every drivenness to work 18 hours a day, every impulse within us is actually rooted in some cry for suffering. There is some deep need that is aching to be tended, that's feeling threatened or some old wound that's very sensitive, that's been scratched again or is very tender and has been brushed up against that creates shivers of reactivity or defendedness. 
And so instead of demonizing my rage or my drivenness or my violent impulse or trying to manage it and make it go away, it, which is really not very helpful because it doesn't go away over the long term. It's kind of like pushing a buoy underwater. <laughs> my approach to compassion is, well, let's get a little bit of mindful distance from our interior states but then let's listen to them. Let's try to understand what is the deep fear, the deep wound, the deep need underneath that's threatened. And when we start to hear what's underneath our own interior states, my own heart is softening toward my own experience. I'm settling back into my own compassionate core. Frank Rogers sees our propensity to care for others as the very essence of who we are. And it's reflected by the golden rule, which in one form or another is central to all spiritual traditions. Cultivation of compassion, Frank says, is an ongoing process. It's revitalized when we return to the well and tap into this basic human capacity that sometimes gets buried or obscured, like when we're in traffic. We're driving down the street and uh, a motorist jumps in front of us and, and we start feeling rage and we're stressed out um, about how late we are and about how, how nobody's paying attention to us. They're just getting in our way as we're trying to get to work. And, and I'm feeling stressed and agitated. So that would be an example. Um, so what do we do? Well, first of all, let's think about what, what we normally do is we just live in that interior state. We just act out in the midst of our frustration and we seethe and we let the stress just ooze throughout our bodies and, and we just embody that emotional state. Of course, this is a common and understandable response to being endangered by someone's recklessness. But Frank Rogers says that in compassion practice, people take a careful look at exactly how we're reacting. Sometimes it may be more out of reflex than reflection. And there's another way to approach it. Develop the mindful awareness. Wow, there's a lot of stress in me right now. Wow, that motorist really did create rage in me when, when it, that car just jumped in front of me. Wow, and I just take a few breaths and kind of reground myself. Okay, it's just stress that's here. It's just a, a, a rage at a motorist and cultivate a little distance where I can be aware of this rage, which this is what all contemplative practices nurture in us, a detached awareness without being enmeshed within it. Wow, there's a lot of rage. There's a lot of stress. Okay, what does it need from me right now? Okay, it's okay. It needs to be reassured that, yeah, our work is important too, and, and we deserve not to be minimized and, you know, but it's okay. Our worth is not dependent upon that car cutting us off. I know better. It's okay. We know better. And my worth is not dependent upon everybody else letting me get through the traffic. I'm going to get there. And we can nurture a mindful compassion towards our interior states. And when we do that, it's like we're really listening to the rage. We're really listening to the stress. We understand why it, it is feeling what it feels. And we extend understanding that relaxes the stress. It relaxes the, the rage within us. And we settle back down into a more grounded, open posture. It reminds me of the way um, some wise parents handle a child's tantrum. Mm -hmm. You see the, the child kind of flailing around and sometimes quite agitated. And just by um, not feeding it, but also not trying to suppress it, but just being present and quiet around it, 
it can uh, alter the dynamics of that tantrum and turn the flame down. Absolutely. And the great secret of compassion is that the capacity we have to do that towards another person, towards a child, we can direct that towards our own interior experience. Because we don't usually treat our own rages with that same kind of present understanding that we would to a child in that instance. Instead, I beat myself up for being angry, and I really shouldn't be angry. I'm a teacher of compassion. Why am I getting so angry? And I'm, I'm judging my own experience. I judge my own feelings instead of offering that, that open presence and, and compassionate understanding. Charles Darwin, in writing about his theory of evolution, suggested that communities where people are sympathetic to one another flourish best. And now neuroscientists are finding that caring for the welfare of others is rooted in our brain and biology. Bobby Gottschalk founded Seeds of Peace, which brings together young people of diverse backgrounds to build understanding. I believe that babies are born sympathetic. If you walk into a pediatrician's office and all the mothers and the babies are sitting around, if one baby starts crying, I guarantee you, unless they're asleep, another baby will start crying too, and then another baby will start crying too. You don't even have to be in a pediatrician's office. You can be on an airplane. One kid starts crying, Another kid will start crying all over the airplane. The kids will be crying, right? So people are equipped to be sympathetic, but we have to nurture that. We have to help them develop that. We are wired to be compassionate. That, that it, it is our core essence in ourself. It's, it's the natural flow of the heartbeat. Frank Rogers of Claremont School of Theology. The Taoists have a beautiful saying that if you remove the obstruction from the eye, the eye sees. If you remove this obstruction from the ear, the ear hears. If you remove the obstruction from the heart, the heart loves. It's like the, the heart naturally loves. When we are in a grounded space, we extend compassion, we extend care. Um, and, and for me, cultivating compassion is not then trying to, to cultivate something that's foreign to us and, and help us feel something that we don't feel or don't want to feel as much as it is removing those obstacles, removing the obstructions that are preventing the free flow of our grounded natural essence. There seem to be things that prompt me and I think a lot of people to a moment of compassion. You know, you see somebody suffering. It doesn't have to be in the form of pity, mm -hmm. but it's just kind of a basic human compassion. Can, can you describe what's going on there? Well, yeah. In, in spiritual traditions, the word for compassion comes from words that uh, refer to the gut, to the womb, to the heart. Um, and what, what spiritual traditions would suggest is that when we are feeling compassion, our, our gut is wrenching for another person's suffering or our, our heart breaks for them. Something deep in our core um, is actually moved viscerally by another person's pain or suffering. Um, so I think that's what's happening is that when, when, we, when we see another person's suffering and we're in a grounded, open place to that, 
Because sometimes we're not, right? Sometimes we see a person suffering and we're just overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, I just don't have the capacity right now to care for one more person, right? Or we see somebody suffering and we think, well, why doesn't I suffer like that too? Why doesn't anybody ever come to me? You know, there, there are other ways that we sometimes respond to suffering when uh, some interior movement inside of us takes over. But when we're grounded and in our core, in that just kind of free open space and we see suffering, we're naturally moved then. We say, yes, and my something in me breaks open um, and, and has compassion for the pain in this other person. There are spiritual tools for enhancing and tuning up our daily practice of compassion. Prayers for loving kindness are found in many traditions. And a lot of it starts with stepping back from the emotions and conflicts of the moment, pausing, and just taking a deep breath. Well, it, for me, it's meditation. Um, I find that that's a great, a great calmer, and I can I can come up with things in my mind that I'm upset about and and breathe them out. I mean, it's a wonderful way to to calm down. Reverend Betty Stuckey is a United Church of Christ minister in Blue Hill, Maine. Breathe in peace, breathe in love, breathe out hatred, um, breathe out um, denial. Uh, sometimes it's um, Breathing in quiet, calming my body, because a lot of that stuff is stored in your body, that, that, that anger, that, that response, that you, you feel it physically as well as you do mentally. Um, and I think that by calming your body, you breathe in peace, you calm your body. You breathe in peace, you calm your body. It works. You have many ways to connect with the uh, spirit force of God so that you are able to be steadied and not uh, let the uh, forces of anger or rage or hatred uh, take over. Professor Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons teaches religion at the University of Florida in Gainesville and practices Sufi meditation. In my case, when I feel those things rising up in my heart, I resort to these methods of beating it back, remembrance of God. Only God is real, uh, and, and these other things are not real. And I'm sure that's not something that, you know, is easy to uh, comprehend. So you have to work at this. You have to study. You have to be involved, hopefully, with a community of believers and uh, people who are practitioners. Uh, and this is something that worries me in America, you know, in the United States of America, where we are a quote-unquote religious people, but I don't know how much of a, a, a spiritual people we are. Exploring compassion as a core component of nonviolent conflict resolution. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to download our entire series on the power of nonviolence or to obtain audio CD copies, please visit humanmedia.org.
Jack Kornfield, author of The Wise Heart, is co-founder of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. He routinely practices reflective disciplines like prayer and meditation. It's a way of training the heart and mind so that we can have this capacity to remain steady and peaceful and loving even when difficult things arise, when we get triggered, when we're in the middle of conflict. I was sitting with the Dalai Lama and then the two young nuns who the Dalai Lama brought with him in their 20s, they looked like they were teenagers, had been thrown in prison by the Chinese army occupying Tibet for saying their prayers out loud and praising the Dalai Lama, which was illegal. They were tortured and they described the terrible kinds of torture they had undergone, electric prods and things you don't even want to hear. And when they finished, the Dalai Lama looked at them and said, were you ever afraid? And they looked back and they said, yes, we were afraid. And he said, what were you afraid of? And they said, we were afraid that we would lose our compassion and that we would let the hatred of the enemy take over our heart. And he said, so what did you do? We prayed more. We prayed for the enemy. Because they had their training and practice, they could see that letting the hatred of the enemy, if you will, into their heart would mean that they had lost. But instead, they said to keep our, our humanity and to keep what we're in prison for alive, we're going to look at even those who torture us and in their view, the karma that they're making, which could lead to great suffering for them in the future as well, for the torturers, we will look at them with compassion and we will not let their values take over the compassion of our heart. It seems almost superhuman to dig deep inside and somehow find an ability to treat those who've tormented you with some degree of understanding. It's not to excuse torture, of course, but a recognition that the persecutors have a sickness. And it's a decision to contain that sickness by not becoming infected by it. The young victims broke the cycle of violence by choosing not to imitate the ill will of their tormentors. It thus affirms their own humanity. Jack Cornfield. Love is more intrinsic to us than anything, more than aggression and more than violence. The other is a way of protecting ourselves. But we protect ourselves also because we love ourselves. The bottom line is love. And when somebody gets angry, it's usually because they're hurt or they're afraid or they've been disrespected or there's some way in which they feel vulnerable and they're trying to protect themselves. There's some very deep love even in that. There's a story that was uh, reported in The New Yorker some years ago of a group of American soldiers in the holy city of Najaf in Iraq um, that were on their way on a mission um, and all of a sudden found them surrounded by a thousand Iraqis who didn't want them in their holy city. And they started shouting, fist waving um, angrily, and this was a unit of 24 soldiers. And the officer looked around and said, this could be really terrible. A shot will ring from somewhere, people will open fire, and we could have a massacre here. And what this officer did, I believe his name was Colonel Hughes, he turned to his soldiers and he said, take a knee. They looked at him like he was crazy. 
and then he lifted his rifle and held it over his head with the barrel pointed down, a gesture that was almost biblical, and knelt down, and behind him, 24 soldiers pointed their rifles to the ground and knelt. And the crowd became quiet and looked at him and them, and all the anger and rage dissipated. He rested there for a time, and then he ordered his men to turn around and quietly withdraw and saved everyone's life. That gesture of respect, which we're all looking for in some way, is possible even in conflict at times, not in the middle of a battlefield. I'm not being naive about it. But in our human relations, it is there to be touched in us. The point, says Jack Cornfield, is to humanize the other side, to see people there rather than labels. When we categorize others too narrowly, we're perceiving them through a distorted lens, a false picture based on preconceptions rather than reality. Reverend Betty Stuckey says we have to break down barriers. If you have somebody in your house for dinner, um, you're not going to throw stones at them tomorrow. I mean, you get to know people, and then you, you see that the humanity in them and in us is the same. There's really no difference, even though they may have darker skin and funny clothes and different hair. It, we're the same. You know, we are the same. And I think it's very hard to um, acknowledge that when the exterior is so different. We have to get past the exterior and realize that Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And we do. I mean, we're all in the same soup together. The theologian Frederick Buchner said it's a vast spider web. And he said that when we, when we say something to someone else, whether it's kindness or whether it's hatred, that that thought, that idea, makes the whole spider web tremble. And then you don't know in what far place your message is being felt, that you, we are all so connected. And that's a hard thing to realize when there's so much difference, you know, when everything appears to be different. But I think if we got to know people, that we'd see that they have the same fears and the same sorrows and see the same wonder and share the same agony and, and that they are like us. Yes, our lives are connected like waves upon a shore sometimes with a whisper and sometimes with a roar sometimes we think we leave no trace but sometimes less is more and our lives are connected like pages of a book the past is the present through which the future looks like leaves on a river like ripples in a brook our lives are connected our lives are connected
There's a tradition in Islam that associates God with beautiful qualities, generosity, forgiveness, kindness, patience, charity. According to this philosophy, when human beings develop these traits and align our behavior with them, we grow closer to the divine. We have to meet God on God's own terms. A Muslim American committed to building bridges of understanding with people of other faiths is Haytham Yunus, an imam or Muslim prayer leader near Washington, D.C. If God is merciful and compassionate, then he loves mercy and compassion. If I am to follow the way that God would like to see me follow, then I must try also to be merciful and compassionate. And so what does that mean? How does that translate into daily acts? I try to be polite with everyone. Even if someone is not polite to me, I try to remain polite and, and, and gentle. Um, this is something which is very important, very essential. To forgive someone's transgression against you is a wonderful thing. And the reward is tangible. It's in this life, not just in the next. Um, there's a saying of Prophet Muhammad. He says, God gives to the gentle what he does not give to the harsh. Um, what, is, what does that mean, do you think? Well, I think that there are blessings. There, there's, a, there's a health benefit, if you will. There's, there's a peace of mind. When a person knows that they have done that which is good towards others, even though others may have done an injustice to him. And does that mean to behave selflessly? Perhaps one could say that if a person had their own best interest in mind, um, they would always remain uh, compassionate and, and polite. There's a saying of the Prophet, smiling in the face of someone is a charity. Raising a morsel of food to the mouth of your spouse is a char charity. Um, removing an object from the road that may, uh, may be a hindrance to passers-by is a charity. So actually looking out for the welfare of other people and doing things that help other people. And again, this brings its, its own reward. The late Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, A religious man is a person who holds God and man in one thought at one time at all times, who suffers harm done to others, whose greatest passion is compassion. Rabbi Michael Lerner in Berkeley, California, who studied with Heschel, tries to carry on this belief today and to bring understanding even to those who don't share it. To those who are not capable of that, I don't want to say they're wrong. What I want to say is they're hurt and they need compassion. And one of the big problems that I've had with liberal and progressive movements is that although I agree with them in most respects in terms of their, uh, their critique of the society, they often don't articulate it in a loving and caring way. And they, don't, they look at those who disagree with them without the sense of compassion and generosity to ask, what were the hurts that make it possible for somebody to be a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, an anti-Semite, um, an anti-Muslim, whatever it is, whatever, you know, uh, uh, in, incapable of identifying with the suffering of 
poor people and hungry people in this world and the immigrants and so forth, I say, yeah, this is, this is somebody, I'm not going to say they're wrong, I'm going to say they're deeply wounded. And what can we do to unwound them or to heal their wounds? Is there always the condition of having been deeply wounded that underlies prejudice, that underlies viciousness, that underlies uh, hatred? I've never met anybody who, who, who was that way, who wasn't deeply wounded. Rabbi Michael Lerner is editor of Tikkun magazine. to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, Mark Kilstein, and Bond Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Noel Paul Stuckey and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment in our series, The Power of Nonviolence, is Humankind Program number 236. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.